Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 35. This week, we talked to John Potasic about AngularJS, Big O Notation, the worst programming language ever, and emailing hardware to outer space. Hey, Carl, how's it going? Pretty good. How about you, Jason? It's going really good. So we are not taking any time off for Christmas for the show. We're not like not like those other shows where they have to have, you know, like a clip show or anything like that. Not for our listeners. They demand the best. And we're just going to we're going to keep on going through it. Yep. No vacations <laughs> here. No, no. I'm going to take some time off of uh, off of work, but uh, no, no time planned off for the podcast. So you can uh, I think we'll, wanna, we'll be one of the few podcasts where you'll actually see new episodes pop in over the over Christmas here. So got that to look forward to. Today we have John Potasic. How's it going, John? It's going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So we we go way back, but uh, let me give you a little bit of background on John. So he's a senior software engineer at Skyline Technologies. He is a blogging nerd, a music nerd, a book nerd, and an ex-nuclear engineer who apparently used to code in Fortran and loves Fortran. I don't know about love Fortran. But I, <laughs> well, I, hold I, on. I write a lot of code in Fortran. <laughs> so you don't love it, you don't hate it. You're just, you're sort of impartial. Yeah, I, I used to... <laughs> My Fortran days, I used to virtually melt down nuclear reactors, so I've come a long way since. Then. <laughs> okay, is that why you want to talk about the uh, North Korea story? Yeah, we could. <laughs> we could. <laughs> no, we uh, we didn't really plan on talking about the the, the North Korea hack because um, I don't think there's uh, I don't think there's much of a, an angle as far as uh, software is concerned. But on the show, we definitely want to make sure that we have lots of uh, security stories uh, to make sure that uh, everybody's writing secure code. So we'll have to keep out an eye for that. Uh, so let's see here. Let's jump into user feedback. We used to do this at the, uh, I think a little bit more toward the end of the show, but we want to give these people credit. And, uh, this is a great way to, uh, to get your name and, uh, uh, you know, mention on the show. So the first piece of user feedback we have here was actually a comment on our website. And, uh, the comment was, and this is from episode, this was the one with, uh, Anthony Russell. So this was, uh, you guys mentioned it would be nice to be able to program an Arduino from a browser. Spark Core is a very nice Arduino compatible device that is Wi-Fi built in and a cloud development environment. Check it out at spark.io. And that was from uh, Matthew Nichols Dev Guy. So that was a, that was a pretty cool tip. I looked at that. It is, it is really neat. Uh, it's an easy way to, to pop that onto an Arduino and then, and then just go into your web browser and start coding things. So it's sort of like the, um, what is that other device? The, uh, uh, the one that uh, you can program JavaScript right from the browser. That was the one we were talking about on that show. Remember the name of that one? No, I don't. Oh, I'm just totally drawing a blank. It'll it'll pop into my head at some point. Um, and then we want to make sure that, um, uh, you know, if you guys want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Make sure you comment on Facebook, uh, iTunes, or Stitcher. And we especially love those iTunes reviews. Those help uh, spread the word on the show. And uh, if you leave us a good review on iTunes, we will be sure to mention it on the show. Even if it's a comment on something that you'd, re- you know, you'd like us to do more of, do less of, do a little bit differently, you know, make those requests. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's jump into the news. So the first one you have here is Chartist. You want to talk about this, Carl? Yeah. So I found this uh, Chartist.js uh, library. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. And I don't. I know that I personally like uh, charting libraries. I, I like getting that visual data. Sometimes it's it's hard to you know see really what's going on until you can put a picture or an image to it. And what's unique about this one, you know, it doesn't just put those charts out there. But it allows you to do animations. Um, you know, uh, it'll put them out uh, a chart out there differently depending upon if 
somebody has like a small browser, they're on mobile, you know, it'll display less information and smartly add in that additional stuff. And what's kind of cool about it is it's um, using, I think that SMIL, I can't remember what that stands for off the top of my head, but, um, and also SVG. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's using those vector graphics, you know, it's getting them so they look crisp and clear on, you know, all the different things. And you can do stuff like, you know, if you might have normally have like a dotted line, it'll it'll like animate that line. So, you know, the line will be moving or you can make the the points on a graph uh, flash in and out. So, you know, all the different things that you might not be able to do currently, it's, you know, kind of a cool way to uh, see that happen. That's pretty cool. So how does this compare to some of the other charting libraries like high charts or what I think another one's like D3 out there? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's cool about this is it gives you control via JavaScript uh, to display the charts in, in a little bit different ways and not not just the visual, you know, how it looks from a graphical standpoint, but like adding in the animations like you can you can draw in one line at a time. You can add a, a little bit of emphasis to the data that you want you know, pulled out a little bit more. So I, I think if, if you look at this, it's a little bit more evident, you know, just by glancing at it, that some of these charts, they just stand out, you know, maybe there's a line that you want to stand out. So you put a little bit of animation to it, or you, you, you make, uh, you know, pull it out visually a little bit where it's, it's hard to do that with a static chart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my go-to in the past. So what we used to do, and I, you, you probably remember this in the, in the recent future was, we would generate, you know, charts on the on the server side and then send them over and then resizing was a huge hassle. And this current generation of JavaScript charts is really amazing. And and yeah, my my go-to right now is uh is high charts. I it's pretty it's pretty easy to implement. And uh so I'm gonna take a look at the next time I want to try a chart, I'm gonna take a look at this chartist. Yeah, one of the things that's really cool too is like, you know, it, it responds responsively. So if you have, you know, a big wide browser, you can you know, see all of the effects. What Whereas if you pull it down to maybe tablet mode, you lose the dots. You just see the line. And uh, maybe when you go all the way mobile, you don't even see much of the background at all. You just see, you know, the general shapes of things. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do here programmatically that, uh, you know, just, you know, tailors it to the device, but yet still doesn't kill you doing it. Yeah. Some of these animations on here look amazing. I mean, it really makes everything look polished. It's pretty cool. And it's a lot simpler than D3, which I think takes most people almost a year to learn it's crazy complicated <laughs> yeah i was looking at before the before the show started i was looking at some of the alternatives and yeah d3 is yeah, super complex high charts is pretty easy i had a pretty easy time starting on it i haven't looked at the uh the code on this one uh but yeah. i suspect this one's pretty easy the high charts uh i think there's a cost associated with it so uh yeah i think there's i think there's there's like two different options and i don't know what the difference is i don't know if it's like commercial versus non-commercial use i haven't used it in a commercial setting one we've used with uh, some different people is Dimple, which is a D3 wrapper. So it okay. kind of takes some of the complexity away. Yeah, I'm looking at the the code that you use with this chartist. It looks super simple. Yeah, that makes it much easier to get up and running quick. Yeah, I mean, it, these things should it shouldn't be that complicated to get started with these basic charts. And then you should be able to layer in the complexity as you want. I think D3 just exposes you to everything uh, right at the start. It's probably powerful, but you're exposed to that from the start. Uh, the next thing we have here is the big O cheat sheet. Uh, did you guys learn big O notation in school? Yes, we did. <laughs> what about you, John? Did you get, did you go over this? Um, 
a different version of it, more okay. <laughs> a math version than a computer science version, but yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, you know, I, just to give you kind of a, a quick explanation. So it, it's one of the few things that I remember from, from data structures in, in college. And, and I, I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't actually like write out some of these formulas or, or things like that, but what, what this teaches you is it, it makes you aware of, of the code that you're writing what the relative complexity is and it kind of tells you how to figure it out and and basically if you have let's say we had uh, an array of items that we wanted to loop through and uh um we 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 wanted to you know run a couple operations on on each of those items like the the additional operations that you run on each of those items doesn't change the big o notation it doesn't add any complexity you're still looping through each item one time and, and it, it's not making, you know, sort of an exponential, uh, change on the, the processing time. Now, if you start to go through and, and, and each, you have some kind of algorithm that has to, you know, compare it with every other item in there, um, or some kind of algorithm that will just make that take, you know, exponentially longer time, the bigger that, uh, that array is, then, you know, that's going to, that's actually, it's going to kill your performance once you get, you know, data above a certain size. So this this uh, page that I showed here is just sort of a cheat sheet showing, uh, you know, some of the different common things that you might have to do, like it's got in here. It has the basic array and like indexing and search and things like that. But then it gets into things like B trees. Uh, what else is in here? It has all the different sort algorithms and how long they actually take. Um, and for some of these, too, it has to show, you know, best average and worst, um, you know, and it and it depends on. Um, you know, what your data looks like. If you have data that, that comes in, that's, that's like completely the opposite of what the sort algorithm was hoping for, what it was optimized around, then you're going to get the, the worst case scenario here. But it, it's, it's good too, because it's uh, colored, but it shows you the relative complexity of these types of operations. Yeah. I'd like to step back and just cover what it is just a, you know, a little bit more, but mm-hmm. uh, so big O notation, at least in my mind, is a way of assigning a, a generic value to whatever it is. It could be a function you have. It could be an algorithm, you know, for searching, you mm-hmm. know, is, is one of the common ones that they look at, but it's assigning this value to how mathematically complex it is, which will essentially be how performant is it? So mm-hmm. I can compare, you know, my function one way to somebody who might have refactored it another way and compare, you know, which one of these is more complex or more performant. Yep. So really it's like, it's not just knowing what these notations are. It's knowing how to, you know, assign what is the big O notation for a particular algorithm function, whatever, and, and how to compare them to each other to, ch- to use that as a tool to pick which one I should use. Right. Because there might be a case where you can just apply a little bit of math to change a few loops into a calculation where you drastically change it from being like a big O notation that's polynomial time to be a constant time, which is just much faster. Mm-hmm. So knowing you know, big O notation on how to figure it out why to figure out and how to use that to optimize your stuff, I think is really where you can, you know, take, you know, this something that some people were taught and just kind of memorized the charts, like which this, this chart is, is there and it's nice, but if you just memorize it and don't understand how it's doing it and why it's doing it, it's not as useful until you know how to apply it. Oh, completely. And I, I think what ends up happening, this is kind of a classical scenario where you're, you're writing on your local machine and you have 10 records or 10 items or whatever, and you're, you're, you know, testing performance of it. And you're like, oh, this is great. So you 
push it into production. And if it's, you know, uh, not linear or it's, um, you know, it, it could be that it has horrible, you know, big O complexity and it will just perform terrible in production. So this, this applies to just about anything. One example would be like databases. You know, if you have, if you're just searching 10 records, it doesn't matter if you're actually iterating all 10 of those records. Um, you push that into production and now all of a sudden you're, so you're, you're trying to loop through a billion records and it's not going to, you know, finish in any reasonable time. So you need to inter- introduce something like an index. that's going to turn that into logarithmic time, which it, you know, isn't going to grow. It's going to grow at a, uh, you know, logarithmic, uh, uh, rate compared to the, the size of the data. So that's yeah. why this is important. And hopefully most of our listeners have learned this in school. If you haven't, I would, I would definitely check this out. And then I also have a link to a stack overflow post that's actually talking about how you calculate these and why it's important. I think it's interesting too. Um, you know, performance matters again. So, you know, mm-hmm. five years ago before cloud and before mobile, you know, you had these big powerful CPUs that were underutilized and, you know, you could suck whatever you needed to out of them. But now, you know, either you're paying for it in battery life or you're paying for it in physical dollars. It, it makes a big difference. Um, I think I saw an article this week where companies saved off a millisecond or something on some backend. Yeah, we actually talked doing. about it on the last show. Yeah, and ended up, you know, saving like, what, $400,000 or something crazy, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly, especially now that we're trying to, now we're using tools like virtualization to start to cram a whole bunch of logical processes into, you know, a single machine, that's starting to matter. You're right, it used to be that, uh, you know, we had sort of dedicated compute resources for each thing, and we could afford to be inefficient. That's that's a really good point. Uh, so like I said, we'll have a link to some of that in the show notes because you, you sort this is a lot of this is visual and you have to take a look out of it. Uh, next thing here, because science emailing hardware to space. This was yeah. really cool. Yeah, this is my favorite story of the week by far. <laughs> so um, because the International Space Station has a 3D printer in it now, um, they can now send digital uh, representation of an object. They can print it out in space and now they can make their own tools up in space. And uh, recently, they just printed their first tool that they've used. It was it was a form of a, a socket wrench or a racket, ratcheting wrench. And uh, I just think that this is a really cool technology for them, especially since they can't you know always plan everything they always need. I mean, you look at some of the you know famous space disasters that were are or that that were, mm-hmm. and how they've come up with like creative you know, solutions to recover from them. Well, now this just gives them so many more tools to, you know, literally that they can use uh, at any moment. So no, this is this is one of the best uses I've seen, actually, for 3D printing, because you're right. What was it? I think it was Apollo 13 where they had to they had the the air filter and they had to fit, you know, literally like a I don't know if it was the air filter that was round and they had to fit into a square (laughs) hole or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So this is this is really cool. And I think the the figure is ten thousand dollars per pound to, to send something into space. So, you know, this didn't save on the actual weight because you still have to uh, send the material up. However, they didn't have to, um, you know, wait a few months. Yeah. And you didn't have to send every kind of wrench you could possibly need. Right. You can, you can wait to see what you need and then just bring up what you need at the moment. Yeah. Just in time tooling. (laughs) Yeah, this is, this is really cool. And the other interesting thing, and I don't think they mentioned this article was that the uh, 3d printer. So 3d printers count on gravity. And there's the company, there's a company that actually specializes making this uh, particular printer that doesn't require any kind of gravity. So I don't know if you had seen anything on that, but, um, you know, it's obviously a little bit different because they can't, they can't uh, count on that extruder 
um, the material coming out in the same way. So this whole thing was sort of an experiment too, to see if they could even do 3d printing in space. So very cool stuff. Uh, what do we have next here? Let's see online Microsoft tests and Microsoft labs, online learning vouchers for partners. So uh, this next story came out of the Worldwide Partner Conference blog for Microsoft, and uh, there's one article that covered two kind of cool things. The first is uh, what they called online test proctoring, and you know that's kind of big words, but what that means is you could take some of your MS uh, uh, Microsoft exams for certifications from the comfort of your own home. Uh, they mentioned that in order to you know avoid cheating and stuff, you have to have like a dedicated webcam that can sweep the room. <laughs> and uh, there's there's still going to be, you know, people watching, but uh, you could take it from home. And for some people, uh, you know, just being a little bit more comfortable during, you know, those kinds of tests, which are sometimes stressful for people, you know, that's it can make point. a big difference. It can make a huge difference in how you do. Yeah, you're right. That's that's a good point. And uh, I think currently they say 50 exams are currently available to take this way with more on the way coming soon. So, OK. And the other one is if the company that you work for happens to be a Microsoft silver or gold level partner, um, there's going to be additional Microsoft labs or, or learning content that uh, you can get vouchers for to uh, keep up to date on skills and, uh, you know, for company exa exams like the uh, exams we talked about earlier or just in, in general to, you know, get that training as you need it when you need it. Okay. So... Yeah, this is pretty cool. The other the other thing is just being able to get to a testing center. I mean, that could be a hassle for some people. So this is pretty cool. Okay, Lumia Denim updates rolling out to Europe and Verizon. So tell me about Denim. Yes. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people were excited about uh, Lumia Denim, the Denim fir firmware. It provides, uh, in particular, a lot of updates around the, the camera, the speed of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there's a few other things that I... Can't remember off the top of my head right now, but I heard last night a lot of people from Europe were saying that it was it was coming out. Mm -hmm. And then uh, today I saw that um, there was announcements that it had come out for the Verizon eight twenty two and nine twenty eight as well. I happened to check my own phone and it had it had already updated. Oh, that's so, cool. Uh, 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 Verizon skipped the cyan updates and went straight to denim. So um, if you have one of those eight twenty twos or nine twenty eights, check it already. It might already have it. If you have an icon, they said it's, you're going to have to wait till sometime in January or early 2015, which a lot of people are still upset about. But at least they're coming in on their way. Yeah, this is just I mean, from a, as a consumer, this is just terrible because the the carriers end up going through these uh, these testing processes. And uh, for the most part, I think Apple gets to uh, skip those, which is uh, sort of it, it's it's unfair for the consumer. And Ed Bot was uh, did you, I don't know if you've been following his tweets, but he's just been losing it on Twitter <laughs> because he was uh, he was complaining about this. He said, hey, when are we getting an update? And they're like, oh, stay tuned. And he went to the the status page and it was, you know, um, the the last Windows phone updates they had were, I think, beginning of this year. So it was like nine months ago and all the and they showed all the iPhone models and they all got updated within the past like two weeks. Um, so he was, he was not a happy, happy camper. And I can understand that you buy a phone and then, you know, the company says, Hey, we're adding all these cool new features. And then, uh, Verizon, you know, swoops in and, and blocks you. It's pretty frustrating. Yeah. Although to be fair, uh, for the most part, you know, a lot of the windows phones do get them fairly quickly. And when you look around at like, especially the Android ecosystem, a lot of times if you get an Android phone, it might not get updated. Right. And, and people outside of what we do, 
most of them don't care. It's right, just right. that, you know, we're, we're passionate. We're into whatever it is that we have, whether it's be windows phone or Android or iPhone. And we always want the best as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've already been like testing windows 10 technical preview. As soon as windows 10 comes out, I'm going to be kind of bored with it already. Yeah. So, whereas <laughs> most people haven't even seen it. Yeah. So, I mean, keep, some of this is keeping it in perspective, but other part of it is it's like, you have to keep this audience happy too. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the, the, the two big features that, that uh, I think are pretty cool. The, the, Hey Cortana is really neat. So if you say that, you know, the phone wakes up and Cortana is ready to listen to whatever you want. Uh, it's similar to the okay Google. And I think iPhone has the same feature as well. So, so are you saying that, Hey Cortana is linked to the denim firmware? So if I have a non Lumia device, say like from HTC or one of the other third parties, will they never get Hey Cortana or is that something that's, that's more good, future for them? That's a good question. I do know that it has to have hardware support. I suspect what's happening and I, this is getting out of my area of expertise for sure. Well, I guess we're almost always out of my area of expertise, <laughs> but um, I suspect the way that it works, the fact that it's only on certain uh, phones that some of the newer phones, I think like the, the, I think the 635 gets it and that's a newer phone. That's a new low end phone. And then also my 1520 does it. I suspect the way that it works is there's a, there's actually hardware support in there. That's, that's doing, uh, audio processing so that, so that the phone can essentially be, uh, you know, in a sleep state and the operating system actually isn't, you know, awake and, and running in its normal mode, but the hardware is actually able to pick that up and then send a signal to wake up the OS. That's, that's what I suspect. That's how I suspect it's working. So if you're not on a Lumia phone, then it, it's really a matter of whether or not that hardware exists or not. I know on some of the other platforms, they usually need like a quad core processor to be able to, you know, have that listening heartbeat going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it has, I mean, it literally has to sit there and listen 24 seven. So, you know, there's really, there's really no way to avoid that. And you end up training it too. I mean, it only responds to uh, your voice and not somebody else's voice. So I think you're, it just, it, it, it just seems to me like it's getting like burned into the, um, you know, memory on the actual chip itself, um, so that it can, you know, have dedicated circuitry just for that. But, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with other, other vendors. Like I said, I think it really matters whether or not they can, uh, put that hardware support in, in the, in the same way. And then I think windows phone will ultimately, uh, pick up on the, whether or not that exists and, and hook into you know, there must be uh, an API that the firmware provides to the OS. If it detects that that's there, then it, it that support is enabled. But anyway, enough speculation. Uh, oh, and then I, actually one other thing I want to mention on that. If you buy uh, certain new phones, and I don't have the list. This is not, I don't keep up on this. But if you buy certain new phones, they come with denim, correct? That's my correct. understanding. Yeah. So if, if, you know, to your point, for people that really don't follow this the same way that we do, if they just go to the store and buy it, you know, a certain phone from AT&T, it will have the latest and greatest. That doesn't mean all of that. I mean, if you go to Verizon, you're not going to get that. Um, but that's, you know, that's sort of how it works. Cause that, I don't know why that short circuits the, uh, the testing. It must have something to do with the way no, it's because it's because they, they were designed for that it already on yeah. hand. So that, that firmware yeah. was being made for that phone. Well, you're right. I guess when they tested the, the, the phone itself, they automatically got a pass on the firmware. So Okay. Anyway, uh, this next one here, <laughs> this one, I did you, you probably didn't have time to watch this, but it's called the worst programming language ever. So it's a, I, did you, did you watch it? I didn't watch it, but I, it, I did read all of the comments about it. Okay. So basically I, 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 this made me really curious and it is, let's see, it's an hour long and admittedly I, I only watched a little bit of the beginning and then I kept skipping through the different languages. 
But basically what he does, he walks through a lot of different languages, you know, especially languages that look like Fortran. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, John. Uh, he goes through each of these languages, you know, Java, JavaScript. And I don't know if Fortran was uh, one of the ones that was in here. It wouldn't surprise me if it was, but he goes through each one and he points out all the things that are, you know, really, really terrible in that language. And then he adds them to basically his own language, uh, creating the worst language ever. So it's, it's pretty neat. And if you look at the, if you kind of skip to the end and, and look at some of the, the code <laughs> in this language that he wrote, uh, yeah, it would just be, it would be horrible. There was a Fortran mentioned at the very beginning. I listened a little bit. Oh, really? <laughs> I see. There's Cobol. I got, IBM yeah, right Cobol. before Cobol, they talked about it being a uh, terse, terse version okay. of source code, similar to the glory days of C. So okay. I see. There's APL in here. Intercal. Uh, there's JavaScript. Um, anything else? I'm just kind of skipping around the video. Those are the ones that I saw. So lots of good languages in there. Perl and regular expressions, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, the JavaScript one, I always find particularly funny because there's that video called WAT and, uh, you know, cause JavaScript makes no sense whenever it comes to, um, you know, like the double triple, well, the double and triple equals make sense. It's whenever it's what you put on the left and right side. Uh, you never get what you expect. <laughs> so, um, Okay. And then where my stash, what is this Carl? So, so this is actually was provided by John last minute. So, oh, nice. so, <laughs> so he demanded this, that we put this in the show. <laughs> yes. So, uh, th this will only work in Chrome. So if you go to where my stash net, and it, Jason, it won't work for you right now because you're already using your video, but if you, if you nope, allow it's your on a web different computer, Oh, okay. So yeah. if you allow it to use your webcam, it'll put this epic mustache in the, in the right spot on your face. <laughs> I I'm, see Jason I'm stroking, stroking, <laughs> I'm stroking my mustache right now. <laughs> yeah, this, this is, if I don't, if I don't uh, shave, this is me about 5 PM. <laughs> so one of our uh, uh, folks here at Skyline, Andrew Peterson, um, mm -hmm. We we actually we wrote up an app uh, using the Connect and the on the um, on the Windows 8 SDK. Okay. And so what we do is we take the video camera and then for the holidays we swap on Santa's head or a reindeer head and you know pe so people can see themselves dancing as the Grinch or something like that. And uh, we we have a office in downtown Appleton and we kind of show the TV to the world and the kids come running by and they love dancing around with Santa on their head so. Uh, Andrew liked that, so he found a JavaScript library that does facial recognition, and then he put his epic Movember mustache on there that he had. So, so that you guys wrote this, huh? That's cool. Um, yeah, so one of our Skyline guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's pretty neat. Project. What What's amazing if if you just view the source, the actual code that's written in there, there's hardly anything. It's it's really all in that uh, face tracking library that you mentioned. Yeah. So that's that's pretty cool. So if you want to build your own mustache application. <laughs> line of business application. You can go out there and check that out. We'll have a link to the show in the show notes. Okay, John, let's get down to it. Let's talk about angular. Awesome. <laughs> so let's uh, first, let's assume some, one of our listeners doesn't know anything about angular. There must be, there's, there's probably somebody out there who hasn't been paying attention at all, or, or they just haven't bothered to look into it at all. Can you give us an introduction to what angular is? Sure. So, um, AngularJS is a JavaScript library um, by Google, and um, it is kind of based on the MVVM pattern. So 
uh, you, you know, you have a model, you have a view, you have a controller, um, and does some, you know, data shepherding between all that. Um, it is really very, very slick and um, does magic. So, you know, a couple, I don't know, a year or two ago, I wanted to kind of do a dive into the different JavaScript libraries, take a look at Angular, um, take a look at Backbone, some of the other ones. And I started with Angular and I stopped with Angular because it, it was just, you know, kind of that impressive. So um, it really is a, a way for you to do... Um, um, single-page JavaScript applications. It provides you an entire framework as opposed to kind of doing a best-of-breed approach where you need to maybe go and get, you know, library A to do your data binding and library B to do your views, um, library C to do your routing. It kind of incorporates all that in there, so it allows you a single point, um, you know, to kind of do a deep dive and get your arms around, take a look at. And the other cool thing is it's really embracing some of the new upcoming ECMA 6 script uh, standards. So, you know, some of the things that will be coming in that, they're already um, kind of pre-doing. Um, you know, their directives allow you to write your own markup and some other cool things. So, you know, that's the high-level overview of uh, Angular. I always find it interesting, um, you know, being a, uh, you know, uh, you know, being a consultant myself, you know, we go to a lot of clients and, you know, they're a little bit wary about, often adopting some of these open script libraries and stuff. But when you tell them it's Google, then they smile and they feel like it'll be okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause of Google's <laughs> great track record. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, and uh, I was out at the build conference this year uh, in April, I think early April, late. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. And uh, was sitting down and um, Anders Heilsberg, the father of C sharp came by and sat down and started talking to us. And there were quite a few um, presentations on AngularJS at Microsoft's Build Conference. So it kind of gives you an idea of how popular it's becoming in the, you know, in the world out there. And we talked a little bit with Anders about that. And he says, you know, they really like Angular at, at Microsoft. It's dark. They can't quite figure out why Google's jumping all over that. But, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're pretty impressed with it. Yeah. The interest it, it's so much fun. Yeah. And, and, and the cool thing for, uh, you know, if you're coming from a Microsoft development background, um, you know, I think one of the JabberJS podcasts in the last couple of weeks I listened to, you know, they there was a little aside. Somebody was talking about how, uh, you know, one of the earlier podcasts that they had done, they had the the couple of the Google developers who started AngularJS, and they talked about the inspiration being WPF and, and Silverlight. So some of those things that you know from your, uh, you know, your uh, Silverlight background or WPF background, if you got a, a lot of Microsoft experience, really come um, – are really easily translatable over into the Angular stack. Yeah, I've used uh, I've used Angular for a couple of smaller projects just so just so that I could understand it. Because you're right, Angular is pretty big within Microsoft, and I think the the idea is to you know the ride the wave instead of trying to uh, go against it. Because I don't I don't think it's uh, I don't think you can stand in front of this one and 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 say no, this is a bad idea. So I think I think everybody is really embracing this and just saying, okay, well, how do we you know, how do we make this better? How do we work with this? So I, it's, it, it is such a joy to use. It's, it's just super fun. And, and you mentioned like WPF and Silverlight, and those were really fun technologies too, except the, the XAML portion, XAML is, is a good idea, I think. However, that being said, the binding and the way that you do things in there, um, in regards to some of the nesting and the way that it's laid out just drove me absolutely crazy. And Angular just makes it work the way that you think it would work. So whenever you want to do binding, you know, you just, you put an expression in there and it just works. And that's, yeah. that's huge. <laughs> no, you, you know, I've done quite a few presentations on Angular. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, 
the Midwest here. And, you know, so I've been around for a while. I was there in the beginning days of ASP.NET and, you know, just, just the ability to go and bring all the data from a, from, from a query, bring it to your page and filter it by typing in a box with like one little command line, right? Is It's just, it's unbelievable when you look back at how difficult things like that used to be at the beginning days of, you know, web programming and ASP.NET. So it's really, it puts a lot of power in the hands of the developer. Oh, yeah. What, what, one thing I, I will take a, a you know, um, challenge you a little bit on is, is mm-hmm. you won't get in trouble with Angular. So the, the one thing that is a little bit troublesome is it sounds like the next version of Angular, the, the 2.0 that they're working on, is going to have some breaking changes. So there's a lot of uh, pain and consternation among the um, people who complain on the internet about this. So, you know, it's, and I haven't spent a lot of time, I'm still trying to get on the current version of Angular rather than the one coming <laughs> up, um, you know, to make sure I totally grok it. But it sounds like, you know, some of the changes will be in how the routing works and, and some other things. So whether, you know, how breakable your code is going to be in the future as you try and upgrade, you know, is going to be a challenge. So, you know, the nice thing that Google's and the Apple's of the world have compared to Microsoft is they don't have to worry about, you know, keeping things compatible for the next version. They just go and break everything and everybody expects them to change. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, that, that that's the one thing if you're starting up a big development project to be at least a little bit aware of. Um, that future versions of Angular may not work with your code base, it sounds like. So what have you been doing personally or recently with Angular? Um, uh, we, we've done a couple of things. So uh, one of the sites, um, customers I work with, uh, they're, they do a B2B e-commerce site. So we started up with Angular on that probably a year and a half ago. So that's kind of the, the main source of, of the data. And so the way that application is laid out, it's a... It's a Microsoft MVC app. We run it on Azure, um, and we use kind of the web API stack for our data services. And then we go and have Angular views, um, and you know, you know, Angular app for client-side JavaScript goes out, does the access. We build the pages that way. Um, and really, uh, the main driver for that is, you know, I, I'm always, especially when I talk to customers and they have any interest in in mobile down the road is, you know, that that web API is a great answer in doing things in Angular. Make sure that you have the data coming down that you're going to need in that mobile app when you're ready to go do that or, or ready to go implement that within an organization or, or uh, you know, with whatever you're trying to do. So um, that's one thing we've done. Um, another thing I've worked on um, we, um, it's Skyline Technologies where I work. We often do what we call dev camps or give camps. Our give camps tend to be where we um, adopt like a charity or a organization and, and one of the places where we work, you know, either Milwaukee or Green Bay or Appleton. Um, part of being a music geek is uh, Appleton has a really cool music festival that just started up called Mile Music. So we partnered with the folks who are running that to create the uh, festival app. So this year we wrote the festival app using PhoneGap and um, AngularJS was kind of the main uh, way that we did the implementation there. The um, The nice thing about using Angular is um, it really allows us to do a nice job kind of separating some of the different pieces that the development team would be working on. So we could have our designers focus on CSS and maybe working on the web view. Um, the developers could work on getting the controllers going and writing that services layer to go out and get data. Um, you know, and it made us, allowed us to execute a lot quicker. So that was something. And then um, I also blog a lot about Angular. So I, I, I've been doing it for a while, just mostly because... Um, I find it 
for me, if I don't understand something, it's better for me to write or try and train. So I, you know, make myself learn it and try and communicate it effectively. And what I've been doing with that, and my ultimate goal is I've taken uh, is to write a uh, application that takes the periodic table and puts it into a make an Angular app out of it. So, um, so I've been kind of blogging all the steps along uh, the way to do that. It's it'll be probably another five years before that's done. The amount of blogging I do, but <laughs> um, so you know that's another way to just kind of explore how Angular works. Introduce some of the things like directives. Talk about um, you know data binding and services. And so a lot of that's available out on my blog. Okay, so while while we're you know talking about sort of uh, an introduction to uh, Angular, I guess how difficult is it to learn Angular? And and you know you're talking about blogging about it here. Um, you sort of get to like ninety percent proficiency really quick, or or do you you know do you keep hurting yourself whenever you start doing it? And it takes a long time to become proficient. Like what does that what does that curve look like to you? Um, you know you know so. I've worked with uh, quite quite a few number of people, um, and since I'm a consultant, I, I'm I'm morally required to say it depends all the time. But um, <laughs> you know, we uh, you know we, I, I've seen people you know with very little um, you know web experience pick it up right away, and then I've you know I've seen folks who've had tons and tons of jQuery experience and their ninjas really kind of struggle with how the implementation is just because, you know, your, your jQuery life is all about, you know, here's my selector and let me go and manipulate something on the DOM. And Angular is really thinking nothing like that. You really don't want, ever want to know anything about, um, you know, what the, the data on your page, you want to kind of let your controller handle the display and the implementation. So it really is a function of how, uh, you know, kind of, I, I, I've been noticing is how strong your web background is. Sometimes it's almost a hindrance to, um, you know, getting on board with the Angular stuff, just because it's a little bit of a different think. Okay, that's very interesting. And then you mentioned, so you worked on a an e-commerce site. It looks, sounds like you did a mobile app. Did those, um, I, I'm, I'm assuming those have certain browser requirements. And for the e-commerce site in particular, is there an issue with older browsers is that does that kind of hurt the project because you know typically in e-commerce i i assume if i take like ie6 and i go to amazon.com it's actually still going to work um just because they don't want to give up the you know 10 million dollars worth of uh sales that they'd get out of those ie6 users um so have you found that to be the the case um so you know we're kind of lucky since it's a, a b2b implementation that oh can- okay Gotcha. We're able to tell people um, what browser to use, right? But you know there are issues once you get down into the IE8s and IE7s of the world. So and obviously IE6. So we were able to say, you know, we're not going to worry about that, and we it's been pretty smooth sailing. So I think, and and I'll be making it up and probably going to be wrong, but I th- think that Angular supports. They say they support IE8 and above, and then you know obviously most of the rest of the browsers tend to be pretty greenfield and and will go and support. Right, right. So then the um, I'm just thinking through the um, you know the the e-commerce example again. So you have your you have your logic on the on the backend controllers, um, and then you had mentioned the 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 web API call. So the do you end up sending down kind of an initial rendering of the page, or is or is everything dynamic and as all the data come through the web API? Um, again, morally required to say it depends. But <laughs> um, you know, so usually. Um, 
especially when we're working with our customers and kind of more of the business side of things, we start out with a MVC app. So the MVC app is going to kind of be okay. um, your regular MVC world. And we may have a, a layout page there and we're going to have the initial markup and those kind of things. And then um, what we'll do is, is within there, go and have Angular be responsible for, you know, kind of the main page rendering. So it'll go and load a view maybe to get a list of orders and bring those to the page. It'll go then and give you an order detail page. It'll allow you to do searching and bringing back results. So, um, so usually that's what we do when we're doing stuff, uh, you know, for our clients and customers, just because the, the, you know, the MVC stuff that Microsoft does is pretty slick and people are awful comfortable with it. So, so one of the approaches that um, I heard, it was actually off of a podcast uh, on .NET Rocks with Miguel Castro, is he said what he likes to do is use MVC to kind of group your application into logical areas. So you might be doing like have it your products area where you show people their stuff and you might have an orders area and a customer's area. And within each one of those, each one of those is a separate Angular spa so you have your single page app that handles all the, the logic for, you know, you know, maintaining the shopping cart and looking through orders and all of that. But when it comes to actually, you know, making a sale, you're switching gears into something else. So, you know, it makes sense to kind of flush everything that's on the client and go to it, you know, a, use MVC to, you know, load that new Angular, you know, you know, spa application and go through all that logic there. Yeah. Um, no, and. That- and and that's that's an approach that when he when he said that it made so much sense to me. Uh, so anybody, I, I would recommend listen to that uh, episode. It was called MVVM on the web. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a way uh, to do it. We've um, you know we've done that with some of our implementations just because you know there there can be a lot there. You know, and, and the one thing too is so you know Angular essentially has this. Um, you know, startup, you know, it's almost always, you know, app.js, which is going to be kind of the modules that you load. And for a lot of small apps and, you know, the way most people kind of talk about it, you usually just kind of have one module that goes and is responsible for how you go and implement all your logic. But, you know, more and more we've been kind of uh, taking a look as, as, as we do Angular apps, you know, have multiple modules that we can then go and call that are responsible, you know, like you said, Carl, for like that order processing or here's a, the shopping cart processing so that you're able to um, make it a little bit more supportable and, and um, um, you know, discoverable for who's ever going to be developing the code after you leave. And one of the things that I like about that approach, too, is it kind of prevents some of that bloat. I mean, you're limiting the scope of your application to, you know, those certain groups of tasks. So when when you keep on adding, it's not just adding it to the same, you know, mess of client side JavaScript. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's always embarrassing. And so I've been working on this one code base for a year and a half now, and it was really one of the first <laughs> Angular projects we did. But you're right, you go and you take a look at it and it's like, oh, wow, I would do that so different now. You know, but, <laughs> you know, initially when we started out, a lot of our project structure would be, um, you know, you have controllers, you have views, um, you have services that are responsible for going out and getting your data. You know, and we would just kind of um, aggregate things by, you know, within a directory based on that. But now as we've kind of matured and understand, you know, what makes sense and, and, and how things work, we've started kind of grouping things by functionality. So you would have an order 
um, let's say folder in your in your application, you'd have your order controller in there, you'd have your order views in there, you'd have your order data service in there, and that just saves you a lot more jumping around in your application as you try and navigate and find what you're doing because you all have it kind of within that uh, that one structure and allows you to you know just move a lot quicker than having to page through the 20 different controllers you may have as your application grows over its lifetime or. 30 different views that may be there. So, you know, that aggregating things under a single folder has been a, a good approach for us. I, I guess stepping back a little bit, because we've been kind of talking around this for a little bit, but, you know, if I've already been doing MVC for a little bit while, you know, the you know, standard, you know, ASP.NET MVC, that's all server side. What should I as a developer kind of be prepared for or prepare myself for when I switch to this client side MVC style of development? Um, you know, so I think the constructs are similar. It's just, right, I mean, C-sharp's a much more pleasant experience than JavaScript, right? So, um, you know, it's, so it's just kind of getting used to the JavaScript um, way of doing things. And, you know, the, the one struggle that, or the one thing I'm, I'm really kind of uh, trying to figure out in my own d development world, right? So I spend a lot of my day in Visual Studio using tools like, you know, Angular, and then part of my day is also in WebStorm. And so they're two kind of like totally different web programming experiences. So a lot of the tooling stuff in the Visual Studio stack is pretty, really nice for doing the MVC style stuff, but not as slick for the JavaScript programming. And then vice versa, as we talk about, you know, using something like WebStorm to try and do, you know, app dev. So, you know, that's kind of one of the, you know, struggles is just trying to get proficient in in, in the platform that you're going to use and, and take advantage and be able to code quick. Yeah, I never even thought of the the IDE structure might be changing there as you're going to do that, you know, enable to or enable to, you know, fully take advantage of everything that it has to both sides have to offer. Yeah, I will say that Visual Studio is getting better and better with JavaScript. I I um, I noticed it on the on the client side with uh, the IntelliSense is getting smarter and smarter about how it's working. You have things like go to definition are starting to work better. And then the other thing is I've been doing a lot of uh, Node.js recently and there's a, there's an add-in for Visual Studio work with Node.js. So I think, I think the, the tooling gap uh, will get solved over time. It's going to keep getting better and better. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think the, I mean, the stuff coming with the next version of ASP.NET with the, you know, the package library. I mean, it is just a, it's a weird dichotomy. I mean, the, a lot of the rest of the world's going command line with things like npm and bower and grunt to kind of load these packages and, and make everything installable and then visual studio is is you know less command line and more you know for, uh, for most people you know add package right click this um, add reference so um, you know I you know it seems like a lot of the 2015 stuff in visual studio will be being bringing those tools like you know npm and and bower into the IDE which is going to be really slick and I think um, you know, remove a lot of friction for that development process. Right. Uh, so I know, you know, Skyline does a lot with, uh, you know, you guys specialize in Microsoft technologies. So I'm kind of curious how well Angular plays with all those other technologies. Uh, it it plays really well. So, I mean, it, you know, we, we have, um, you know, folks in our SharePoint team, mm -hmm. you know, really like Angular because Angular, I think, helps a lot in, um you know, doing SharePoint development, especially when you start talking about going to things like Office 365, where you're where you really only have available to your um, app dev process for most of it. You know, most likely is going to be JavaScript development. AngularJS does a great job there. Um, 
you know, folks who are co really comfortable with, you know, uh, the MVVM stuff from WPF or Silverlight, pick it up really quick. They like it. Um, you know, a lot of the web devs are able to kind of jump in and get going on it. So, you know, we, we, you know, find it plays really well and across a lot of the different Microsoft tools and platforms. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, Angular works pretty well with IE8 and, you know, that, you know, going back at least that far, but, you know, is is that the same story for mobile? You know, considering there's iOS, Android. Android has about I don't know about thirty million different browsers, uh, uh, as, as well as Windows Phone. You know, IE on mobile is entirely different than the same version for the desktop. Um, yeah, you know, so I I don't have a ton of browsers or uh, mobile <laughs> phones to go and check out a lot of the stuffs, but you know, so we did that. The Milo Music app I talked about was, you know, PhoneGap, which is essentially a, um, you know, a, you know, takes a HTML application, um, in this case, an Angular JS HTML application, wraps it up in, um, you know, essentially the web browser, and allows you to deploy applications to, you know, the iOS store, the Android store, the Windows Phone store, and so we we did that implementation, and you know, it ran relatively. Uh, when, when it ran, you know, we didn't have really too many issues other than performance because, you know, the browsers really aren't great for performance on those platforms. But, you know, people were able to run the application. They were able to take a look at it. We didn't seem to hear a lot about compatibility issues with the different Android devices. Um, you know, and most of the iOS stuff seemed to work out all right also. So based on that, I'm going to go with it was okay. Um, we don't have a lot of people coming to us. Um, you know, I mean, the, the people I'm working with, uh, you know, for the for the commerce site, are really focused on the kind of the desktop, but we've loaded up in browsers and iPads, and it all works fine on our phones and um, Nexus devices and that kind of stuff. So it seems like it's good. Yeah, I just looked. Uh, I just looked it up. So they in Angular 1.3, they dropped support for IE8. So it looks like nine and above. But IE8 was, uh, I mean, even that is a, a quite a while ago. That's a pretty old browser. I would suspect that most people are off of that. Yeah, I you know. Um, a, a lot of people are off of it, but a lot of businesses still are on it. It's yeah. kind of business-wise, it's what IE6 was a few years ago. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the nice thing is you're probably you're either focusing uh, business or consumers. If you're if you're focusing on business, you usually do have a little bit of control over that. You can say um, you, you can know your audience a little bit better. You might be able to narrow it down to a few browsers. Um, if it's consumer. Then you might just say, hey, most people are up to date on this. And then just, you know, I'm not sure what you do for older browsers. That's that's always a big dilemma, right? Yeah. And so we, we um, the experiences I had, we've, we've punted. So yeah. punting is also good. <laughs> yep. Uh, so let, let's get down to like other frameworks. So I guess but the first question is, should I be using something like jQuery with Angular? Um, you know, um, you can. So, uh so, you know, the issue becomes, right, you start having these really large libraries that you're downloading. So I, I'm not really, you know, 100% sure what the size of jQuery is these days or what the size of Angular is. But um, so so my, you know, I always tell people, unless you need to, kind of shy away from, you know, having both of them in there. Uh, but then there are going to be some reasons why you're going to want jQuery. Those tend to be, you know, third-party JavaScript libraries maybe that you want to bring in. You know, I know initially, for example, Twitter Bootstrap, um, you know, was used, using uh, jQuery for their um, you know, for their implementation. So, you, you know, we would go and include that. But as Angular became more and more popular, people 
uh, developed something called Angular UI, which you know is essentially Twitter Bootstrap uh, without the the jQuery references. So they previous versions of Angular, and it's either um, a recent one or an upcoming 2.0 one, um, have deployed with something called jQuery Lite. So it allows you to kind of do some of that DOM selection within uh, Angular. They, you know, they're going to be deprecating that for for whatever reason. So a lot of the Angular deploys out there already have some jQuery-ness in there. But, you know, just in terms of performance, I try and steer people away from that unless there's really a reason for a library that you need to utilize. Um, You know, most of what happens in jQuery is going to be, you know, doing DOM manipulation. And that MVVM pattern really is, you know, that separations of concerns you're looking for in terms of testability and in terms of, you know, making sure your application, you know, is doing the right things. You know, jQuery kind of violates that. Yeah. So a, a new application, you probably say, you know, stick to, to pure Angular. And if you have an existing application, I mean, there might not be any choice but to keep jQuery around while you're transitioning. Oh, yep. No doubt. Yeah, that's a good point. And then, so I looked up the size. So jQuery uh, 2 minified uh, is 83k and then angular is 123k so you're right i mean if you had both of those in there you'd be you know well over 200k um if you have just one of them then you're you're probably within a reasonable size now keep in mind there are additional modules for angular i know like the routing and things like that have now been separated out so there might be a, a number of files there that you have to include yep but you know so you know but ultimately it gets down to you know it's just a different philosophy so right you know you know jquery is really you know, let's do DOM manipulation and let's go and update your page that way. And Angular is really about having the controller be responsible for presenting the view for your browser. Yeah, exactly. And then what about like Knockout and Backbone and those types of libraries? Like how do those fit in and compare? Um, the, the you know, the concept of jQuery is to, or, uh, it's, geez, we've been talking to <laughs> make my brain a little fried. But yeah, no. there's, there's too many <laughs> libraries, right? <laughs> You know, it, it seems to me the concept for Angular is really to kind of be a one-stop shop. So, you know, it, it's not really the best of breed type approach you would get if you wanted to use a knockout and maybe, you know, a, a different templating engine or, or whatever. So, or, or backbone and kind of combine those together. So their their motto is really, you know, we're going to do all of it. And, um, you, you know, so you're taking that, I'm going to go with this framework and, I, and I'm going to move forward. Um, you it's which is a little bit different than you know taking a look at knockout which in in backbone which tend to be you know just focused on doing a single thing and doing it well so um you know usually when we're doing a implementation in angular it's going to be just using the angular library and not relying on some of those other parties for things like templating or data binding or or what it may be yeah i've i've used knockout and and knockout is pretty slick i mean it does the the binding for you but what I really don't like is out of the box how you you sort of have to pollute your um, your model and Angular lets you Angular sort of cheats it. Uh, my understanding is it actually will sit there and pull properties to do like change notifications so it can tell when a property actually changed. And I know in the new version of ECMAScript it will be able to uh, natively hook into um, uh, change tracking that the the browser will automatically send. So I think. Angular in that regard, as far as watching things, is going to have the upper hand. I suppose Knockout will probably update um, at that point. And I know there's some shims too. I think to get Knockout to to work that way. But what I liked about Angular was it it didn't. And this is always good and bad, right? It abstracts you from some of the uh, ugly realities. But at the same time, like those ugly realities, you have to confront them at some point. <laughs> so right. that that's that's really uh, you know how I feel about Angular, but. Man, it's just magical in, in some of the some of the things that I've used it for. 
So one of the things that Jason was telling me about earlier is how testable Angular is. Have you done much testing with Angular? And I mean, how important do you think it is for people, you know, coming into using something like it? Um, so um, most of the projects I have done, we haven't done a lot with testing. Um, Bad, John. Bad. I know. I know. <laughs> um, you know, and, and part of it is just... You know, um, you know, when we go meet with people, it's either, you know, they want to pay for features or they want to, you know, um, you know, pay, they're focused on getting features out. And so that tends to be the reason we don't do as much testing as we should. But, you know, obviously the, you know, the, the nice thing about Angular is, is it, it really is focused on testing and making sure that, you know, you can go and make sure that your application isn't breaking and getting that going and, um, you know, making a testable platform. A lot of that relies on the, you know, the the dependency injection things they have going on in there, which are really slick, and, um, you know, it, it just makes the platform pretty robust. But personally, I haven't done a whole lot of it with it, other than kind of the work I've been doing on uh, the periodic table app. Okay. Yeah. What really impressed me was it. It's really designed for testing, and and what's amazing is it's. Um, and actually, I guess this is kind of true of the open source world in general. There's, I, I've, I've really seen a lot of this, but like their documentation for Angular for each feature shows you the feature, and then it actually they wrote a test for it, <laughs> which I think right. is pretty cool. No, so, I, yeah, the the testing stuff is, you know, it it is slick and it definitely yeah. was built with that in mind. Yeah, I'm glad that they didn't just slap it on later and then be like, you need to do testing. And it's like, well, you know, you should have tested from the start. Then, you know, they're 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 actually following through there. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you is about um, uh, front end build system. Do you do you use anything like Grunt or Gulp or any of these these uh, systems? Um, I, I do do some with Grunt um, mm-hmm. for the for the periodic table stuff I'm working on. Um, generally, when we're working with the Visual Studio stuff, um, we do not use Grunt for the app development there, just because. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit harder to tie in for that for the build process. I I just think I saw there's actually an add-in now for Visual Studio. Yeah, it just came I, out like last week uh, or two. Yeah, I haven't uh, actually played. Well, I shouldn't say I haven't used it extensively. I installed it and then I I looked and it will show you like your your. Uh, I think it works with Grunt and Gulp because I I tend to use Gulp, but it, it showed my actual uh, build steps in there and and that was pretty much the extent of it. But it it looked like it was pretty good integration. Yeah. So. I think it was Mads just released that. Mads, what's it? Mads Christensen, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't had a chance to bring that in. So, you know, some of our folks that we work with, they love things like NuGet and bringing that all in. And then other folks just really throw up their arms and say, no more open source, no more open source. So, you know, they (laughs) like their um, tried and true Microsoft stuff. So, um, you know, I I am pretty excited, though, with 2015 and, and bringing in things like Runt and Bower and NPM to kind of really, um, I think it really helped the web dev story for, for the Microsoft stack and visual studio. Yeah. I got to say, this is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, I just published, I didn't realize that it was my second NPM package and, uh, I didn't realize how dead simple they make it. I mean, they make it so that you really have no reason not to publish your code as an NPM module because you end up, um, you know, in, in a typical open source project, you're going to have, or in a Node.js project, you're going to have this packages.json. Uh, or package dot is it package dot json yeah package dot json yeah. and you have all your dependencies in there and all this other information once you have that you end up running one command line that basically logs the command line into the the npm uh, repository and then you say um i think it's npm publish and that's it 
And then whenever you increment your version and you, you know, you just go to command line and say NPM publish again, and that's literally it. And it pulls in like, you know, you get, it, it gives you all the, the readme info from the, the GitHub page gets pushed into that package. Um, it's really amazing. They've done an awesome job at that. I think there's a lot to learn from, from that. So I, I'm hoping to see those, those types of, uh, you know, the, the, the removal of friction in, in the next version of visual studio. Yeah. When I did, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned this, but recently wrote a blog post, you know, where we, I, you know, use the MVC stuff for ASP V next on, on a Mac. And, you know, the cool thing was I, I built a project using, I think, Yeeman's the, the pronouncer, Yo, right? So it has a template generator, goes out, generates a MVC application. Yeah, Yeoman. Yeoman. Yep. I go out and, you know, it goes and uses NPM to go download. And there wasn't a solutions file. There wasn't a project file. There was a project.json file that was there. It had all the dependencies that you need. You go and you call KPM to go and build it. goes, downloads all those dependencies, brings them into the application. So... There's a lot of cool stuff coming. It'll be it'll be fun to watch. Yeah. So that do you want to talk a little bit more about that blog post? So as you said, yeah, you had it running on uh, OS 10, and um, that that was that was really cool. So that experience was it was pretty seamless. Um, yeah. I mean, it was really uh, it, it it was really pretty simple. I mean, there's a um, brew is kind of a you know you know a, a, a get app type thing on the on OS X platform. So. Mm-hmm. I think there were like one or two command lines to run for that to go and download some of the ASP.NET vNext stuff. And, um, you know, Yeoman would go and generate the scaffolding. So there's a couple ways you could do that. ASP.NET, you could do an MVC app. Um, You could do a command line app and go and generate that up. And um, then you just run a couple of KPM packages to go and build, start up the web server, and you're you're running an MVC application. So it it was uh, surprisingly easy. Wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah, this is this is neat. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to try this because I actually I should have done it earlier. I had a Linux VM fired up on on Azure to do some performance testing, and uh, I, I should have tested this out. So next time I have a Linux VM, I'm gonna try that. That's pretty cool. Uh, anything else that you wanted to mention on the Angular front? Um, you know, if you haven't looked at it yet, um, you know, jump into it. There's a lot of uh, cool and interesting things there. If you're miserable in your job and you and you're looking to move on, jump into it because tons of people are looking to hire Angular folks right now. There's a lot of demand in there. Um, it's amazing how many people email me every day asking me with fractured English where if I'd like to go join their company. <laughs> but um, you know, so it, it it's a really um, I wouldn't even call it up and coming anymore. I mean, it's probably the prevalent yeah, job here. library. Yeah, you know, and and you know, I think. Um, you know, Microsoft is embracing it. You know, Google's obviously a big supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is going to prepare you, too, for the next version of uh, ECMAS 6 and some of the things coming there for web development. So it'll, it positions you well for the future. Very cool. Uh, shall we move on, guys? Okay, so let's go to the Azure pick of the week. So this week, I picked web jobs. So this is pretty cool. I I, uh, I finally had a really good use for this. And I, I think I, yeah, we, I mentioned this, uh, last week on the show, I was writing a little, uh, Node.js script to go out and pull down new S- new RSS items and, uh, email, email those to my Kindle. And what I was able to do was create a free web job in Azure. So basically create a web, free website, sorry. And then I was basically able to upload that whole package, uh, as a zip file and, uh, um, run that as a web job. And I'm actually working on a blog post on that. I don't have it yet. Um, it's probably actually going to be a while because there was a, 
uh, a code change that that had to be made to web jobs for for what I was specifically trying to do. Um, so I'll have more information on that later, but I recommend checking out web jobs. So if there's anything you want to do, I mean, you can always run a script on your local machine and say, you know, every hour or every six hours or every day or whatever, please run this script. But it's kind of annoying. I actually have my script running right now and it pops up on my screen in front of whatever I'm doing with task manager, I think, or with, um, uh, the task scheduler. And I think I could probably get rid of that, but it's really not worth my time, but being able to run that sort of independent of your computer up in the cloud is pretty neat. So you can, I mean, you can run this thing for actually for free if you're not consuming a lot of compute resources. Otherwise you can use shared resources or even a a full dedicated machine. Uh, and you can do like continuous tasks or you can do uh, these, these scheduled tasks and the scheduler is uh, pretty sophisticated. So I recommend checking that out. If you have anything uh, like that, any type of job like that, that you want to run. And um, if you already have a website in Azure, uh, let's say you're paying for an actual dedicated uh, website, uh, you know, standard instance, this will actually run on that same machine. And it just runs, you know, and in, in basically in a different folder and that job gets kicked off. So you, it's not even going to cost you anything to run one of these things. So it's a really neat concept. And then Carl, what is our app of the week? This week's app of the week is a Windows game uh, called uh Family Guy, the quest for stuff. <laughs> and um, I, I don't really, to be honest, I don't watch the show much, but I love games that I can just turn my brain off on and just just do mindlessly. And this is one of those games. So if just as a warning, though, if if you have kids that you don't want them to watch the show, the humor on the game is exactly I was gonna say, this, what the this show probably has. isn't a isn't a kid for games. A yes, game for it, kids. It, yes. It, <laughs> Either one it's of those. Definitely, it's definitely not for, for kids, but if, if you like the family guy or you like games that you can just turn your brain off and do mindlessly, this is perfect for you. Cool. Yeah. I'll have to check this out. So this is, so it's free. Uh, it's, it's one of those that are free and it yeah. has plenty of in-app purchases if you want to. Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's where everybody's going now. I, th- what frustrates me is like, what is the true car? I, w- I just wish they would say these games would say like, pay, pay 20 bucks and get everything that the game has to offer. It looks like what the in-app purchase side of it is speeds the game up. So it's not that, you know, so you could just keep pumping money into this, but you don't lose anything by not paying. Okay. So I I should really get like 10 games like this and just play each one a tiny bit each day. And then I'll, it'll be like a full game every day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. Oh, and then we got to get to the game here, John, and you're familiar with this. You said you had, uh, you had heard this on the show before. So go, go ahead and pick a number between one and four. Um, three, three. Good choice. Okay. Would you rather go with a friend's family to a fancy restaurant for dinner and keep, uh, string beans hanging out of your nose for the whole evening (laughs) or take your shoes off and set them on the table next to the food for the entire night? Uh, probably shoes off. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking too. That would just be annoying having string beans hanging out of your nose. Yeah. Good choice. Good choice. And Carl pick a number between one and four. One. Okay. I'm going to use the same card because I've been wasting a lot of cards here. So I'm going to use one off the same card Uh, for a million dollar prize. Would you rather have to keep a hula hoop going for five minutes without stopping or have to pogo stick across a football field without stopping or falling? I wouldn't get the million dollars. I can't do either. (laughs) (laughs) I would do the pogo stick because I'd have a shot at that. I know that I can't hula hoop. Yeah. I I can't imagine I could do either because I'm a little bit larger guy. I I don't think a pogo stick would be one of my talents <laughs> for a, for a special video episode. We're going to have uh, Carl on a pogo stick. <laughs> I will do that or at least attempt that for a million dollars. <laughs> there you go. 
Okay. So John, where can people find you if they want to read your awesome content? Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter. I tweet probably too much at, uh, <laughs> at J Patasic. So the spelling needs a couple of consonants, but it's J-P-T-A-C-E-K. Mm-hmm. And then my website is jpatasic.com. So I have uh, blogs on, you know, some things on Azure and AngularJS and yeah. um, DocPad, your favorite blogging platform. Yep, yep. Oh, that's right. Because you had cloned, uh, cloned my site and you're using the same platform. It's very cool. Yeah. So one, you know, one of the problems I always have with blogging is trying to figure out a good way to get JavaScript into, you know, the, you know, most of the blog engines are going to sanitize that and get rid of all the script tags and makes it a horrific pain to go and get JavaScript. So yeah, DocPad was the best thing I could find to enable that. Oh, it's, yeah, it's so easy because you just paste it in and you make sure that it's tabbed in and, uh, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it is magical in that regard. So we'll have a link to all your stuff in the show notes. It looks like Carl has like three pages of links here. <laughs> and uh, Carl, where can they find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. And thank you, John, for coming on. It was great talking to you about Angular. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for uh, having me, guys. And I hope you all have good holidays. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 